All right, all right, all right. <clears throat> Let's get fired up here. Maximum freedom. Read. Stay on target. Maximum Stay on target. Maximum Read Rothbard. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the next episode of the Actual Anarchy Podcast. Podcast where we talk about movies from a Rothbardian and anarcho-capitalist perspective. My name is Daniel and my best friend Robert is here, co-host extraordinary. What's up? We're going to talk about the movie It, currently in theaters, with a special guest who has not only seen the current movie twice, but the original 1990 Tim Curry version dozens of times on VHS, no less, as well as read the book multiple times. His name is Doc Brown, and we're going to introduce him in a minute. But before I get to that, I'm going to ask Robert, what episode is this? Episode 41? That's right. Actualanarchy.com slash 41. That's where you can find more. How you doing, Robert? Doing fantastic, buddy. Another episode with my best friend. Yeah, loving it. Um, doing an old old movie, but now it's been redone, and apparently only half of it's been redone. I did not know that. Just learned that. Fantastic. So maybe we'll do another It when the next one comes out, because this one appears to be doing really well. Yeah, we're gonna, all kinds of records or something like that. We're going to do it, phrasing. We're going to do it and do it well, chapter one and chapter two. And to help us with chapter one, we got Doc Brown... He writes for us at the site occasionally. He's a Facebook master extraordinaire and an all-around good guy. We've had him on already for about an hour on pre-show, or an hour and a half. Good, good, good Lord. He's been on for a while. How you doing, Doc? Say hello to, right. the, to our audience. Hello, audience. I'm a member of the audience, and I, that's, this is going to be weird hearing myself down the road. <laughs> yeah, don't worry about that. You just got to block that out, man. Yeah, block, block out the bad. <laughs> Can you listen to yourself, your recorded voice, without cringing? No, I can't. Doc? Even when I hear myself record a voicemail message, you know, uh, like, you know, leave a message and I, I listen yeah. to it, I'm like, oh, God, I sound horrible. <laughs> yeah, I know the feeling. Yeah, Robert hasn't listened to any of our shows yet. I've listened to all of them several times, but I have to do the editing, and I also have to make sure that the, you know, the sausage turned out well. And so I've gotten used to it. You know, it's it's one of those things like there's little bones in your ear and in your jaw that change how you hear your own self speaking. And so that's why if you leave a message for someone on the phone and then you hear that message later, you're like, that doesn't sound like me. Right. That, that's one of those things. And so when, when people hear their recorded voice, they're like always kind of turned off by it. But I'm used to it now. I, I know I sound like an idiot. I'm fine with that. Oh, stop. Good. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of, it, speaking of it... You know, idiot. Uh, we're going to talk about Stephen King's It. Wait, first thing I got to ask you guys: Is mm. It the proper politically correct pronoun now, or is uh, it like oh, man. or something like that? Should be what, what is it? It's Jit. Jit, which sounds very. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like a cuss word. Profane. It sounds very profane. Oh, and you can you can cuss all you want on the show. Uh, we mark this as explicit. <laughs> uh, you can see on our artwork there. It's uh, rated MF for maximum freedom. Uh, awesome. State is strongly cautioned. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, what I envision for this episode, Doc, is a bit of a compare and contrast between the novel, 
1990 made-for-TV telenovela, and the current in-theaters blockbuster movie. Uh, if you can sort of fill in a lot of the gaps, Robert and I have not read the book, nor have we seen the new film, so we're, we're going to be focused on the terrible soap opera version. But we know the basics of the story. You've told us in the pre-show about the orgy, so we've got to get to that in the, in the, <laughs> the episode. The orgy. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and I, I, I do think that they, in, in the made-for-TV movie, they do allude to that without being overt about it. Because there were some weird... She was making out with all of the guys in the, in the TV yeah. version. Yes, she was. And it seemed really awkward. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but now, since you've told us the background, it makes total sense to me. There you go. Yeah. That's how movies tend to work. They tend to leave out a whole bunch, but they allude to a whole lot. And if you don't know the backstory from the book, a lot of it goes over your head. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. I, and like Robert was saying earlier... In, in our pre-show, it, it felt like a lot of the 1990 version left a bunch on the cutting room floor. Mm-hmm. And so you sort of got this like fragmented, you know, cut for commercial story that, that didn't really kind of come together. But it sounds like the um, new version is a straight through, like, well done movie, lots of good storytelling, good acting, like the exact opposite of the 1990 version. It's seamless without any holes. Right. Yep. Right. But does right. so so the, the the new movie essentially just covers the first half where there it's just little kids. Does it follow the plot, or are there new scenes scenes that are only uh, book? Uh, I've told people it sticks to the book about fifteen percent. Fifteen. So about fifteen percent. That's my opinion, having watched it twice and reading having read the book several times. So they took a lot of creative license on this thing then. Yes, they took a great deal of license on it. For the better uh, or for the worse, in your opinion? Um, to me, it's like The Shining. The book was phenomenal and the movie was phenomenal. And, you know, I grew up with the movie. I hadn't read the book until a few years ago. And when I read the book, I went, holy crap, this is like almost a completely different story. Yes, it's the same family. Yes, it's the same creepy hotel and Colorado, but other than yes, he's got the the kids got the creepy red rum shining ability. But aside from that, it was almost a completely different story, and it's almost the case with with this particular movie. So if you read the book, you're going to get a completely different story than you will from the movie that just came out. Oh, interesting, interesting. But it yeah. but it has the same beginning and end points, I assume. Just a whole lot of stuff in the middle. Well, different. Uh, here's the thing, and I heard. I heard an interview that the director did. He wanted to focus exclusively on their childhood in this movie. And then he wants to focus exclusively on their adulthood in the second movie. Now, the way it plays out in the book is the same way it played out in the 1994 version of the movie, where you start off with the adults, but they keep having all these flashbacks. Right, it was inter interspersed, yeah. Right, and it was nineteen ninety. It was it was back in Jordache jeans and and Technicolor like ski jackets. Right. Yeah, and mullets, bad, bad uh, special effects, and high all tops. That kind of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and but you have to realize it was a crappy movie because it was made for TV. They had to go with what the uh, the ratings board wanted and all that sort of thing, and so they couldn't have the foul language and they couldn't have the blood and gore and they couldn't have all the stuff they probably would have wanted to put in the movie. And like you said before, they had to make room for commercials and it was a two night affair as opposed to a one full throttle movie affair. So, uh, in one night. So, um, 
they kind of that's why it was kind of blah you know yeah well fair enough that's that's putting it nicely (laughs) yeah i'm trying to be nice (laughs) you are being very nice this movie was the, the 1990 version was so unintentionally hilarious for me. I laughed out loud multiple times, mostly yeah. due to the intense overacting and just bad acting of the kids in the first half of the movie. Yeah, yeah. Some of those things that they did, like uh, the one kid put his hand on his face, and then when you go back to the, the so-called present, he's also got his hand on his face on his cheek. And it's like, come on, that's so corny. What the freaking hell, you know? Don't do something stupid like that. That's one hell of a stupid segue, you know? I was okay with that. I was what? fine with that. I did not like that. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it was like I'm a like, nervous, it was a nervous tick that, that stuck with him, uh, even uh, 27 or 30 years later. Yeah, I, th- right. I think in the um, 1990 version, and, and Doc, as a, as a listener of our show, you know that we usually start out with the Google description and find out how wrong mm-hmm. it is. So mm-hmm. we'll, we'll get into that. But uh, in that... 1990 version, I think it was 30 years apart, and then in the new version, it's 27 years apart, something like that. Something like right? that, yeah. Between the return of uh, Pennywise. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, I thought that that was an interesting, like, nod to this kid suffered a traumatic experience, and then it stuck with him 30 years later. So he's doing the same nervous tick. Gotcha. Yeah. So to me, that was like actually good, and you're like calling it out as like this bullshit thing. <laughs> it's like a superfluous part that didn't need to be there. I don't know. You know so the horror for him is still there. You know, he doesn't have to put his hand on his cheek though. Or like Stan when he bites his thumb and pulls on his ear. It's like you don't need to do that. Come on, give me a break. Yeah, and that's Stan's the kid with the. Um, he's like the Boy Scout, right? He's the Boy Scout with the names all the birds and everything like that. He's the right. one. He's the most skeptical of the bunch. He's the one that's like all on the uh, logic, empiricism. This can't possibly be happening. It just doesn't make any logical sense. That sort of thing. Okay. Very yeah. good. All right. So I'm going to read the uh, Google description for both films, and then, and then we can start getting into this. So I'm going to start with 1990, which is described as an American-Canadian drama series. And I say drama advisedly because that's how they say it in Canada. 6.9 on the IMDb, 57% Rotten Tomatoes, 8.5 out of 10 on TV.com, 80% of Google users like it, which I'm surprised by because I watched this and it was not good. Uh, the uh, description says, seven friends engage in a struggle with the demon they first encountered 30 years earlier in their main hometown from the Stephen King book. Yeah, and, that's and about scene. it. And scene. I mean, that's, I don't that's know if you call it a demon. <laughs> I, I guess I could quibble over the demon aspect. It's but, not a demon. But, yeah, I mean... There are no know. religious overtones at all no, in this book. No, but, no, yeah. no, but this does, have, this does have the great Tim Curry in it. It's got uh, Scott Evil in it. It's got my doppelganger celebrity uh, lookalike. Um, nice Harry, Anderson. Harry Anderson. Yep. yep. John Ritter. John Ritter. Uh, O'Toole, yeah. All these great TV actors doing TV acting in a TV uh, miniseries. And and I will admit, when I watched this, I didn't realize it was a miniseries. I thought it was an actual theater release. And so I was very confused <laughs> when it, it had these little vignettes that, that seemed like we're going to a commercial break and then the scene ends. And you come back from the commercial break and, yeah, it fades to black after like a little musical little ditty and yeah 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 it it really threw me threw me off but now it makes sense and it was like almost what three and a half hours something like that Mm -hmm. Uh, three hours and seven minutes and it you feel every minute of it oh yeah it it felt like a five-hour movie yeah (laughs) 
Yeah, and, and realizing it was made for TV, it makes a lot more sense with the character development and how long they drew that out and how much filler they sort of had to throw in. Because mm-hmm. my comment to my wife when we were watching this was like, this is bizarre. Like, I think a decent director could have done this whole set the scene background on all seven characters in like 10 or 15 minutes. But they spent an hour, hour and a half doing that in this made for TV version. But um, I'll go ahead and, and then I'll read the Google on the uh, the new version. Well, for me, it, it seemed weird in that there's so it's so long, and I understand there's a fair amount of story, I guess, to get through. But it seemed like a lot of it could have been cut because a lot of it seemed like it wasn't really character developmenty. Like you got to know, it's like they introduced every single character, mm-hmm. and they gave every character a little thing to maybe remember them by. But like none of that stuff became really relevant throughout the story, if that makes sense. Yeah, it was just there so, to be there. Yeah, it was just there to be there. Like, okay, these are different characters. Okay. But, I mean, I, we could get into it towards the end. But for me, it seemed like they were just different for the sake of being different, and none of it became relevant at all when it came time to actually wrapping up the story. Like, nobody had an arc. I'm, I'm curious to think to find out if any of either of you guys find an arc on any of these characters. It didn't seem like that to me at all. And then it is 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 it just a substitute for anybody's scary whatever? Is he just a, a a monster that's feeding on human bodies? What what does he want, or is he just different in every iteration? I'm curious to know that from Doc's uh, point of view, or because he knows the story much better than us. Yeah, um, it is definitely not a clown. Um, if you watch the TV movie, it looks like a really bad spider with glowing lights on it. Um, in the book, it also takes on a kind of arachnid alien form, <clears throat> but it's also a truer form, which is in another book, which we can talk about in the wrap up if you want, is um, it's kind of like a, a, just a massive goo, almost like uh, the blob from the 1950s or something like that. And its essence is these dead lights, which is basically just orbs of energy, which goes back to the whole idea of... Um, physics where everything is really just energy and energy gets created, neither gets created nor destroyed and that sort of thing. And it is older than the universe itself. Um, it, there's a couple other entities out there besides this particular creature, but it takes on the clown form because it wants to feed on, it feeds off of fear, feeds off your soul. It'll eat your body, but it, <clears throat> I don't know if you, you noticed it in, in the movie that you watched, but there's a lot of remains of the bodies left. They're kind of just like mangled and the faces are a little destroyed or like a limb is ripped off or something or some bones are broken and the person is dead, but the body is not really eaten up and chewed up like, like you would, like a cannibal tribe would do in the jungle, like cookie in the cauldron kind of thing. Um, What it's after is pretty much your life force, your energy which keeps its deadlights, its energy going. And um, fear is kind of like the salt on the meat for it. So it goes after kids because kids are more prone to hyper emotion. And it's easy to freak kids out. So they're also an easier target too. So that's why it goes after the kids. It doesn't really eat them per se. I mean, it kills them and then it kind of takes some of their soul with them. Um, which Stephen King has some technical terms for that in his books, but it's more of a, an energy 
and th- there's something about I guess the chemical makeup of fear or something like that where like I said it just it adds a sense of um, delectability to it um, like for example I know we're talking about the 1990s movie but in the current movie um, Beverly he has Beverly in his lair and she says to him he's holding her in, in the air with one hand like he always does and she's like I'm not afraid of you and then he sniffs her like you know like those weird uh, pedophiles sniff the kids you know kind of a thing and he's like oh no no I right. don't know <laughs> oh okay well it's a it's a sorry <laughs> it's a big you know the 60 minutes thing where they talk about they just they showcase the pedophiles and they entrap them and everything. Oh, the uh, uh, yeah, the um... yeah, and they talk about the different characteristics of pedophiles and what they do. One of the things that pedophiles like about kids is I don't know why they mention this, but is their scent, like how the kids smell. I guess because of the baby powder and all that kind of. I don't know. That was a long time ago that I watched this kind of stuff. But, um, I guess they took it. They took um, some bit of impetus from that and motivation from that kind of stuff. But he smells Beverly. And he, and he gets like this disgusted look on his face, like, oh, yeah, you're not as flavorful as you would be. And he doesn't eat her. So it's kind of like uh, an esoteric, ethereal, kind of higher level, abstract kind of thing where it's not possible for our finite minds to comprehend, except in the form of the clown or in the form of, the, of your greatest fear manifestations or in the form of the spider, or something like that. Does that make sense? I know that was a long explanation. But. No, that was long, and I wanted to cut you off several times, but I didn't want you to screw up your flow. Sorry. I'm just it trying resulted to get in a few please. questions for me. Uh, before we get into the, to the new version, are you referring mostly to the book with this Beverly scene and the, no. the delectability and the, and the scent, or is it no. the 2017 it, movie? 2017 movie, yeah. Okay. Because it, it's starting to fill in some of the gaps I had in watching the 1990 version because it seemed to me in the 1990 version that it and, and Pennywise would just threaten these seven kids mm. who, for whatever reason, he wouldn't injure them or harm them. He would just threaten them, but because of some ethereal goodness or I almost want to say um, this coming together of these kids, this communal togetherness like, prevented Pennywise from killing them. Right. Yeah. And it, it yeah, almost, I wanted to know that too. Yeah, it almost seemed Why? like he was arguing <laughs> Why? for communism. He was arguing that, that unity would prevent harm or, or something like that. Uh, but he but seemed never to be able to kill any other kid, no problem, yeah. like instantly. Right. That's one of the shortcomings of film. Yep. Go ahead, Robert. Yeah, Go he ahead. was super easily able to kill this rando person or that rando person, but then all of a sudden when these seven people get together for some magical reason that's never explained, he's all of a sudden powerless and he has to sit there and just scare them or something like that. It, yeah, it made Stephen no King sense. Likes to do that. Stephen King does that kind of stuff all the time. Like uh, um, Billy, the one who stutters, he has a bike that's called Silver. Like, hi-ho, Silver away. And it's like this bike has some kind of special powers to, and, and supposedly, in a way, kind of saves their lives because they, they get, in the book and in the first movie, they get chased, the 1990s movie in the park at the end, they get chased by it. And this bike saves their lives. And it, it keeps appearing, you know, Mike Hanlon finds the bike and he saves it for Bill and all this stuff. And you're, you're right. A lot of it, it's like, what, what's the profundity of this? I don't understand. And sometimes it gets explained and sometimes it doesn't. 
I mean, if you really want to understand a good portion of it, you have to read the 1,200-page book. But even then, you're still confused because it's part of it's the the the, the it mythos is part of a larger mythology which Stephen King has created, kind of like Tolkien did with the Lord of the Rings in Middle Earth. It's one piece of a big gigantic puzzle, and it, this ties in with the movie that just came out recently, The Dark Tower, uh, the one that stars um, Matthew McConaughey and Idris mm-hmm. Elba. Um, that's another part of this whole mythology that Stephen King has created. So Interesting. Do all of his books uh, tie into this multiverse, or is it just a, uh, a selection of them? Um, a vast majority of them do. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, we get into what, that in the wrap-up if you want, because that's really interesting. He's got Especially dozens for, of books, right? I mean, he's oh, like a prolific... Yeah. He's written like 50 or 60 books or something like that. But okay. if, if this is an introduction ep- episode for people who are not familiar with Stephen King and his literature... And his communism? <laughs> yeah. It, you know, it's amazing. I mean, I'll let you guys ask the questions, but I have some some thoughts on how he's he's a very far-left individual, but he's written some some books that are kind of like right up our philosophy's alley. And it's like, how did, why did you, how did you do this? You know, like, do you not realize what you're doing? You know? Yeah. It's like by mistake. It's almost like uh, Joss yeah. Whedon doing Firefly. I mean, he's like yeah. this big progressive liberal lefty, but he makes Firefly and it's like this libertarian space yep. opera, uh, yep. which is really good by the way. Uh, so I, I, I don't want to move on to 2017 just yet because I have all these questions about the 1990. Sure. One of the things that Robert, brings up a lot in in this show is the characters not exhibiting or reacting to the tension or the danger of what they're presented with. And this 1990 movie, made for TV movie, was blatant in this respect. Like, they're being haunted by Pennywise, and then they're joyriding on the bike. And then they're haunted by Pennywise and they're seeing him like pop out of a grave and then they're having dinner just having this like, bullshit conversation and then they're haunted by Pennywise and like the murderous uh, uh, what's that guy's name uh, Henry Henry Bowers yeah. yeah and then they're just like making out with each other on the stairs I mean it's <laughs> it, it switched back and forth so often between these these totally weird tension scary moment and then just fucking around <laughs> Robert, is this did this bother you? Yeah, it did bother me, um, but not necessarily for that. I mean, I got the effect, the uh, sense that it was taking over a, a large period of time, and that that Pennywise wasn't omnipresent in their lives. Although you would think he would be, um, it, and that was one of the problems I had with the, the the movie's ending, in that he's this omnipresent demon clown thing that's totally torturing them their whole lives and completely affected them and to the point where one of the characters commits suicide instead of having to deal with him mentally even mm-hmm. and they never react to him like they all agree that they'll come back at, you know if, if called upon if, if Pennywise ever comes back and so then they get called and they all come back to the town they all come back to Derry and you think you would have maybe this is like the key defining moment in your life and this is a huge big deal and this is like a I mean if you were attacked by a demon clown you'd probably remember it you'd probably change your life a little bit you'd probably do things a little bit differently you'd probably maybe prepare a little yeah. bit for the return of this demon clown if it ever happened I mean you'd probably be some sort of a weird prepper person or you'd become really successful and have all kinds of weird like stock your house full of guns and knives and I don't know whatever um, or you know anti clown whatever 
but they get back at the end, and here's this massive thing that they should have been preparing for, and they're like, well, did anybody bring any weapons? No. Nope. Oh, oh, okay. So what are we going to do? Oh, well, we got the slingshot, and we got yeah, these two right. earrings. And then when that fails, we're going to just punch and kick it, and we're going to rip the shirt. And the whole movie, besides being super, like, get em boys level of quality, uh, was... Thank you. <laughs> You, you know it, buddy. Uh, that just reminded me the very first half of the movie was all just get him boy stuff. Um, this, this, this story was written during Stephen King's um, famously um, time period when he was basically just snorting a whole lot of cocaine and drinking a whole lot of beer and then just powering through midnight writing sessions. Yep. And it seems to me that he's not the greatest outliner. He likes to just kind of get into characters and kind of see where the story goes and kind of has a general idea of where things are going. But then since he doesn't have any kind of point to the story, I mean, at least in the, in the, in the movie, it didn't seem like that there was a real point. Like you can tell me what the plot is and what happens in the story or in the, in the, in the movie, but then what the story is, is say, you know, the one man's, learning about himself and dealing with his parents' breakup and that sort of a thing. Like, those are two different things, but they're happening concurrently. Mm-hmm. There's none of that in this movie. The characters are the same at the beginning as they are at the end. They don't learn anything. Their, their little idiosyncrasies never come into play. Um, it, it seemed like a story that was more of like a, a slice of life as opposed to a, a real coherent story, I guess, uh, without, for lack of a better word. And it, it bugged me in that sense. It, it bugged me in that, yeah, the characters weren't reacting to this demon clown thing realistically. I mean, yeah, they'd all be damaged adults. That's true. And I think he got that. And they'd all be psychologically hurt by this clown thing. But they never, they never reacted as a sane human being would. They, they, um, they do the thing where when a dumb thing happens in a movie, they reference it and then they move on and they have a little laugh about it. So the uh, Harry Anderson character goes, we should have a machine gun. And as the audience is like, yeah, you should. You should have something. Yeah. You've, you, you've, you've had 30 years to prepare for the return of this demon clown, and you've got all kinds of money. Don't give me that excuse. So, yeah, for me, that was, uh, that's my big complaint with this story, is that it doesn't seem to have gone anywhere. It seems to be more of a psychological study than a story, than a coherent, like, full character arc type study. And it's fine, and it's obviously been very successful, and people really enjoy it. But it, it didn't uh, work for me um, from that aspect. So, yeah, there's my little rant on that. So you're I saying did. that my, my doppelganger was your favorite character, and uh, the great Scott Evil was the child version of, <laughs> of him? Yeah, Scott Evil turned into Night Court, and he was probably, yeah, the, the best in that he even at least referenced that. But he should have known, but he should have had something, a knife, a baseball bat, a stick, a rock? I mean, I don't know. Do something. It's a big, giant demon clown thing that's been torturing you and haunted you your whole life. Why? Why wouldn't you? I mean, are, is he so? Are they so haunted and broken of people that they can't even think to deal with it psychologically? Is that is that the point? Yeah, and the other weird thing was they were all like very highly successful in life, uh, except right. for the heroic librarian guy Yay, uh, and doc, doctor librarian. Hey, there he is. <laughs> but he he. He stayed in Derry and uh, did not, you know, have great success in life. But the others, all the other six did. They were, you know, a successful architect and she was uh, in 
some international business with, with Japanese investors and in, in an abusive relationship. Yeah, fashion uh, industry. Yeah, in the fashion. Right. Yep. Yeah, and all of them had at some you know claim to fame. Um, the night court guy was like a night night uh, talk show host, like a Jay Leno type. Jay Leno and all that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and so I and that was of course part of the story, right? Was that they all experienced this and they got out of Jerry and then they were very successful and it seemed weird that they were all successful, at least how they pointed it out in the in the movie. But I'm going to segue in and then Doc, you can jump in. But the one thing that really bothered me probably the most in this was when they're in the um, bed and breakfast and there's weird shit going on and they're like, oh, let's not split up. You know, all three of us are going to go up the stairs because if we go alone, then he'll pick us off one by one. But when they get to the top of the stairs, they split up. <laughs> I know, they go to their own rooms. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, d- jump in, Doc. Well, wait, before you, before you jump in, <laughs> yeah. uh, another thing bothered me about um, when the, the librarian is attacked and he's knifed. Yeah. And he doesn't scream at all. He was, his mouth wasn't covered. He had plenty of times and opportunities to like, make noise and to get people to help and rush in. But he never did, and that, that, that bugged me, too. But go ahead, Doc. Because librarians are used to going, shh. Yeah. It's just in their subconscious. Even, it, even when they're getting knifed. Like, <laughs> uh, even when they're getting murdered, they're like, oh, I better be quiet. <laughs> You're like, wait a minute, i got to be quiet. <laughs> All right, wait. Before you get going, so, yeah, about that, that stabbing scene, I was really surprised that they made this Henry guy such a big component of the story, but then they kill him off, like, almost immediately. And so yeah, easily. he got very little screen time as an adult. Mm. Yeah, it was weird, right? Yeah. They built it up as this big thing, this big ominous thing. Right. Like he's talking to Pennywise in the moon in the psych ward, and he kills uh, Dean Coots, the um, the guard. And I thought that was an interesting nod because Dean Coots, of course, is another author who wrote similar type <laughs> thing, yeah. competing right. with King, right? right. And so At they the made time, him a character yeah. and said, "I hate Dean Coots. <laughs> Kill him. <laughs> he's the worst." Uh, but yeah, they build up this Henry as being this important character. Like they even build him up as a child, as this important character. And then he stabs Ron Hanlon, the librarian guy. And then it's almost like uh, the the other two kind of walk in on this happening and roll him off of him, and then he dies. Yep, that's what happened. Yep. I mean, he gets stabbed, but yeah, by himself actually. If you watch the scene very closely, he basically stabs himself in the heart. Weird. I don't understand it. No, but, oops. You know. Well, I'll tell you this. Stephen King is <clears throat> he's phenomenal building up, like you guys mentioned. He's phenomenal building characters up, being, building a world up. But he's horrible at the climax. He's horrible at um, following through to the end. It's just kind of like I thought all this guy. Now I ran out of steam and I have nothing left, so let me just write something real quick. You know, and that's that's a major weakness that I see in him. And so it's one of the more common complaints that people mention when they, they, they review his books and his literature. So this is like when he runs out of his Scarface pile of Coke? I, starts... I was just going to say that. Like not the Scarface <laughs> part, but the Coke part. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, you, you guys brought up some good points. I haven't actually disagreed with you guys on anything. You guys make excellent observations and, and insights. Um, it's it's a, I guess you're not supposed to get too much in terms of... of um, Growth. I mean, it's it's a superficial coming of age. It's basically all oh, the end of your idyllic, innocent childhood, 
and now you're getting ready to go out to the big bad world kind of a thing because capitalism is all bad and everything like that, you know. Um, so that's where the orgy scene comes in, by the way. But um, you're, you're absolutely right. There's really no arc for a personal character development among anybody. It's just, uh, yeah, we go from being kids to being, a, you know, kind of like entering adulthood. And that's about it. That's all you get from that. Um, definitely not going to argue with you on that. So what was the other thing that you mentioned? You mentioned something else. Well, is it more apparent in the, in the novel or in the new movie that he is purely a psychological uh, manifestation? So in the, in the 90 version, they, they have him appear to the, the main group. Mm-hmm. And then nobody else can see him. So right. nobody else can see all the blood. Nobody else can see all the balloons and pennywise right. and whatnot. And they even say to each other, you know, at various times, you know, he's not really there. That's not really your brother. That's not really your father. That sort of thing. Is it, is it, is he, because he seems to be like the super psychologically powerful thing, but then super physically weak thing. If a couple of kids can shoot a, a silver thing at his head and then he's like, has to go to sleep for 30 years. That's the thing. It's a very, it's very abstract um, dilemma that Stephen King has created for his audience. He seems to have some idea in his head that he just can't get, get quite get out on the, on the page or mm. the directors can't get out on the film because he can't get it out on the page. Um, mm. He's like I said, he's basically an, you get this from the book. In essence, he's basically energy. He's just—he's—he's he, he's a life force. There's almost like a almost like a demon, or almost like a ghost or a poltergeist. Where it's, it's so. It's, wait a minute, then. So is the is the silver in the in the slingshot then purely a symbolic thing, and they could yeah. actually conquer him just through their denial of his existence, sort of thing? Yes, it's like a supernatural okay. kind of thing. Here, because the thing is is he if you notice and you notice this better in the new movie in the old movie he kind of had more wherewithal he was more with it um he's trying to portray a clown but he can't hold it if you notice what in the 1990s movie when he manifests as their worst fear like for example um ben um the haystack the fat kid down in the barrens he he is his father he, he manifests as the kid's dead father but he can only do it for a little while and then you notice the voice changes and then you notice the little the little pom-pom buttons on the front of the, the vest and then he just has to plain old disappear because he can't hold it because he doesn't really under he, the, the the character it really doesn't grasp certain aspects of i don't know if you would call it humanity like for example it lacks empathy um, it lacks affection. It lacks all these different goodness aspects that um, we have, that we possess. It doesn't have it. Now, in the book, it talks about its counterforce, which is a turtle. Um, and there's a couple references. In all right, Tom Woods, if, if you're listening, is triggered right now. Oh, yeah, Tom Woods is the turtle. Hey, man, the turtle. <laughs> but that's what Stephen King does. He makes this, the counterpart to the it thing is this turtle. And the turtle, this is getting into this whole mythology thing. I'll just say it real quick. The turtle basically um, pukes and creates the universe. I know I'm seeing Dan on the video going, wait, what? Back up. Wait, what did you just say? This is the stack of turtles on top of other turtles? No, or? this is just one turtle. And, okay, there was, 
there's these three things that there's several things that existed before our universe existed. Um, one of them is this force called, I think it's called G A M GAM, which is Stephen King's version of God. And then you have this turtle, which actually creates our universe and his, like the yin and the yang and his yang is this character, it. Um, so the turtle is all things benevolent and good and it is all things evil and, and crude in, in the world. So, so um, go ahead. So these kids didn't really actually ever kill it or harm right. it. I mean, if this is some right. sort of an eternal creature, eternal being, then... It's on this I, plane that we can't really comprehend. So they think in their finite minds, as kids, that they killed it. But they don't really know for sure if they killed it. And then as adults, they think they've really killed it, but they really didn't kill it. Spoiler. And <laughs> Spoiler. I mean, I'm not, I don't think I'm really giving too much away. I think you kind of pick up on it anyway. But um, And if you read other books by Stephen King, he makes allusions, direct allusions to the fact that Pennywise still lives. So it's just his version of manifesting to us so we can comprehend him. Kind of like the whole God story, how people can't really comprehend God, so Jesus Christ came down to earth sort of a thing. It's that kind of a parallel, and I think Stephen King actually, uh, I don't want to hold my, my feet to the fire on this, but I think in some interview he mentioned how that's kind of like the parallel that he drew, that's the, the source that he drew off of. Kind of a thing. Now, do you think that he was uh, steeped in psychological theory and, and literature in that Pennywise manifests as a clown and the kids can see him because clowns are like intended for kids and there's like this collective unconscious, like Jungian kind of um, shared yeah. experience amongst these kids. And, and as they grow up and as adults, they no longer see it. And so that's why the parents and the other people can't see the blood and can't see the, mm-hmm. yeah, all, all the all the bad stuff. Um, and then the kids are also like, it seems like they can battle it and Pennywise via make-believe like the one kid with the asthma inhaler sprays him and says this is like some kind of acid battery and it's burn, acid. yeah it's gonna burn right. your face off but it's right. just an inhaler but because yeah. he's projected out into in the direction i fart in your general direction of it <laughs> yeah right uh it becomes battery acid and the silver is like uh, a nod to silver bullets and werewolves and etc and you mentioned the bicycle is called the silver streak or silver whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like there's a lot of symbology that is tied into make-believe and story that the kids grasp onto into this psychological realm that they can use to battle it. Yeah, um, because that's part of the what I was – I got away from it, but that's, that's what I was trying to get at before. Is it, really doesn't, it really doesn't understand these things. So it doesn't realize that the, the inhaler isn't battery acid because Eddie says this is battery acid. It just automatically accepts the idea that it is a weapon that can hurt it kind of a thing. And it's more of a, like you were talking about earlier with them uniting together and it, their, their strength, their life forces being unified to fight this thing. It's more of an energy level kind of thing because they believe in it. Their fear, their fear goes down. And it's like a, a, a battle. That, it's almost like a battle of wills, but with some ener- some manifested energy thrown into the mix. So it's it's its will versus these kids' wills put together going at it. And it really doesn't understand that these things really are really not weapons, but because 
these kids. It's almost like the law of attraction. You know that thing that came out a few years ago, the secret, the Rhonda Burns oh, thing. Yeah. Um, it's kind of like that, where because I think it's so, the universe will manifest itself to be so, and that's the the um, premise with which it works off of, and these kids' life forces. Um, it goes into a great more detail in the literature, especially if you read other books like the Dark Tower series. It, that The Dark Tower series really explains this sort of thing. So Stephen King makes these books where he leaves you hanging so much you get frustrated, but then you have to read these other books in order to understand the stuff that you don't understand. But then he create it's like, but then he creates more questions. So then you got to go and read other books to answer those questions and on and on and on and on. And that's how he gets his reader base. He just draws them in with, I'm going to give you an answer, but then I'm going to give you two more questions kind of a thing. He must be doing something right because he's highly successful. And I'm surprised that he's, such an advocate for Bernie-style socialism. I know, it's weird. Like, it if you've made millions sense. of dollars selling your books, why don't you spread that wealth around yourself before you start voting the violence, outsourcing the violence out to, right. to make others do it? Yep. But anyway, uh, I, I know I, I teased everyone, the audience, that <laughs> we would start talking about the 2017 version. So can we jump over to that, or do you want to kind of close up on 1990 before we move into that one, or should we just nope. compare and contrast and keep going? It's fine. Uh, I would just say that the uh, 1990 version is a lot closer to the book than the 2017 in terms of going with the flashbacks and everything. That's how it's laid out in the book. I would say the 1990s version holds true to the book about 60 to 70%. Okay, interesting. So, okay. Yeah. All right, well, let, let's, let's jump into 2017 here, and I'll just read the Google description on that real quick, and then um, we'll kind of go from there. So let me see. Did I get it here? There it is. All right. Here's what it says. Uh, came out this year. Drama film thriller. Two hours, 15 minutes, 8.1 on the IMDb. Uh, 86% Rotten Tomatoes and 87% on Google users. It's breaking all sorts of records, like we said earlier. And the description says, seven young outcasts in Derry, Maine, are about to face their worst nightmare, an ancient shape-shifting evil that emerges from the sewer every 27 years to prey on the town's children. Banding together over the course of one horrifying summer, the friends must overcome their own personal fears to battle the murderous, bloodthirsty clown known as Pennywise. And that's what it says. Uh, I don't have any qualms with that uh, from what my understanding is. Uh, What do you have to say there, Doc? Yep. (laughs) All right, good enough. All right, that, that covers that one. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I, I do think um, Bill Skarsgård is the uh, Pennywise in this one, and and I know him from the Netflix series. Um, oh man, it's totally escaping me now. It's just kind Describe of terrible. What's happening? There's Wolfman and a um, Gypsies, and he's like a werewolf, or no, he's like a vampire style thing oh yeah yeah i don't i've heard of it i haven't watched it but i've I've heard of it before i don't know which one it is i do know that the kid who plays henry bowers also plays one of the kids in captain fantastic which was one of your earlier episodes oh interesting. i played relian relian is that how you pronounce the character yeah 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 relian yeah. That that was a weird movie, man. Really weird. Like they're oh, super Captain smart, Fantastic. intelligent, oh. and yet they're Maoists. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It doesn't make sense. But anyway, uh, Hemlock Grove. That's what you're talking about. That's the one. Hemlock Grove. Yep. Oh yeah, Hemlock Grove. I've heard of that. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Skarsgård, what what did you think of his version of Pennywise versus Tim Curry? You asking me? Yeah. 
Oh, yeah. okay. Um, Tim Curry is one of my all-time favorite actors. He's just so darn awesome in every respect. Um, I would put them almost on par because Skarsgård does it, does it differently. Um, Tim Curry is like the Shakespearean Pennywise in terms of he didn't have a lot to work with. But yet he made such a, an, an amazing impression on everybody who watched the film in terms of that was a good villain. But then you have Skarsgård, who I would compare to Heath Ledger's version of the Joker. Like he just brought this whole new gritty, uh, darker, if you can even think of that, spin to more out there kind of spin to the Pennywise character that Tim Curry didn't because maybe Tim Curry was too constrained with what he was allowed to do. And, um, yeah, made, made for TV might do that. Yeah. Skarsgård. I would, like I said, I would make him like the Heath Ledger. of uh, High praise. Yeah. That's yeah. High praise. Indeed. He was, he was really good. I mean, I couldn't fault him for anything. I went in very skeptical because I was such a fan of Tim Curry's Pennywise and I was blown away by Skarsgård's performance. I was really impressed. Uh, my better half went in there going, give it a chance, give it a chance. I said, fine, I'll give it a chance. And I came, I, we came out and she said, see, aren't you glad he gave it a chance? And I said, yep, yeah, I'm very glad. It worked out very well. Um, the things they had him do, the way he, he just acted. He had a lot more screen time than Tim Curry's did because he, they went to more depth with, each, with his interaction with each particular kid. And um, I listened to an interview done by the director, and the interviewer asked the director, how did Skarsgård handle his character? Because, you know, you hear the urban legends about some people can't handle their character very well because it's too dark and it's the, the, the villain is too, too much to handle psych- psychologically. And he said that Skarsgård just had to, like, he had to take some time out because it was, he was a lot more intense. He was a lot more serious than the um, Tim Curry character. Because Tim Curry character was a lot of humor in the sense that he was being silly because he's a clown. But with the Skarsgård character, it's a lot more intense and not so humorous. The kids were a lot more humorous in the 2017 version. They were When I went to go see it, I saw it came out on Thursday night and I saw it on Friday night. And there were a lot of, the, the, the whole theater was cracking up laughing a lot of the time because of the kids, but they weren't cracking up with Pennywise. Every, every time Pennywise was on the screen, it was, it was a serious moment. And it was like, you could hear a pin drop in the room. That's how well he stole the show. He was oh, awesome. interesting. Yeah. Robert and I were laughing at the kids too, but in the 1990 version, just yeah, yeah. they were. <laughs> yeah. but for, for a different reason. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so that brings up a, uh, that brings up a question of mine is that, um, you know, this movie does horror in a different way than other horror movies do, where you have, you know, the unseen being, you know, very dark and foreboding and you have creepy sounds and noises and like jump scares and that sort of thing. Um, but this movie just shows you Pennywise and it kind of banks on the fact that he's really creepy. Mm-hmm. So is this movie scary or is it more creepy how did you, I mean, unfortunately, you already know the story and all that, so nothing yeah. really surprised you, I suppose, but is, um, it, is it a scary movie, would you say? Uh, for the uh, shock, for the shock factor, um, it, the character was more, dis- the, the Pennywise character was more disturbing in a creepy kind of way. Um, there were a few jump scenes, there were people, all around me, there were people jumping, 
but it was just like the ha kind of moments. Um, but you knew they were coming because the music kind of built up to that and everything else. Like, but those are kind of cheap uh, for me. And those are cheap. Yeah. 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 Um, but it was. But the penny Pennywise wasn't funny. Um, but the kids were very funny. The kids just the, the Richie, the one who I think it's Richie, the one who likes to. Uh, do the voices and talk. He was the, he almost stole the, sh- him and Beverly, the girl played Beverly in terms of the kids. If those, if they were, if, if they put all the kids together into two and they made Richie and Beverly, it would have still worked great. If that makes any sense. They like some of the characters, they kind of made superfluous because there were so many kids. That's what there's seven kids, you know? So how do you, how do you, it's like the, the Avengers movies where they all come together. How do you work all the characters into the, into the film? There's just so many. Right, there's just too many of them, yeah. Exactly, it's, it's a little bit of a drawback, you know? So. Yeah, it seemed like there was a lot going on in in just the background and the number of characters and the moving pieces in the 1990 version. Yeah. But uh, we are talking about the 2017 at this point, and um, Bill Skarsgård, I was reading in, in my preparation for this episode, that they made sure to, um, on set, limit his interaction with the kids so that it would be shocking to the kids for his scenes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so they didn't interact with him at all, uh, except in character and, and trying to get like the more um, visceral reactions from him because they wanted to eschew any uh, Uh-oh. <laughs> complacency, right? <laughs> and any nascent uh, feelings of, uh, co- uh, you know, familiarity with him. They wanted to get that raw emotion, that raw reaction. Mm-hmm. It definitely works, I think. God, if I saw him in person, I'd be freaking out. Like, ah, you know. He does seem a lot creepier looking just in the imagery than the Tim Curry version. His smile. Look at that smile. It's just, that's a totally unique smile. Plus, they gave him like two extra big front teeth that look like canines, actually. So, um, yeah. And his and the, the adults in the, in the 2017 version, it's almost like they, they worked off of Skarsgård especially with like their eye movements, for example, you can say a lot with your eyes and the way they work their the adults work their eyes in the, in this 2017 version, that was definitely a creepy factor. It's like, Holy crap. Did they take lessons from Pennywise? But it, one of the abilities of Pennywise, if you didn't pick up on this in the 1990s version is he can control people's minds to an extent. He can like go into your head and kind of control you and almost use you like a puppet. And he did that to great effect in um, the 2017 version. So. Okay. Yeah. He's got a lot of yeah. abilities. It's just, he's a very nebulous character. And I, I, I can, I had that problem. And I see you guys have that frustration where it's like, I'm, you're trying to make this guy tangible, this, this it thing. And you just, it's a hard thing to do because there's so much to this it that doesn't seem like it all works together into one puzzle kind of thing, if that makes sense. Uh, at the end of the movie, is the finale the same with the, no. the slingshot and the silver earrings? No. Um, in the 1990s version, it's, 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 a, it's a relatively quick chain of events that occurs in the I think the 1990s version is just kind of like one big battle and it's not even that big of a battle it's, it's kind of quick but yeah. in the 2017 version it's completely different um, in the 2017 version they focus on the house on Newbolt Street which 
hardly plays at all. I don't even think it does play at all in the 1990s version, but in the 2017 version, it plays a huge role, just like in the book. And um, they have this, they have this, you know, in the 1990s version, when they're all together looking at the photo album and the picture comes to life and then he climbs up on the lamppost and he says, I'm your worst nightmare. I'm, I'm the eater of worlds. And he puts his hand through the picture and he tries to grab, grab the kids. In the 2017 version, it's a slide projector and he takes over the slide projector and then he comes out of the, the wall where the, the thing is. And it's a really, it's a really intense battle actually. And the girl in Bill's garage and then they open two of the guys open up the door and Pennywise just disappears. That's a big battle. And then Bill's like, fuck this. And he goes right to the knee, the house on Neibolt street. And then they, three of them, well, three of them start to have a big battle inside the house and then the rest come. And it's just like, Holy shit. These seven kids are taking on this clown thing. And it's, it's equivalent to the battle that took place in the 1990s version. Then they go back and they regroup and they go back again and they have this even bigger battle with him where it's seven on one and they use... Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. When you say yeah. battle, you mean like people are punching and kicking or are you talking like Punching shooting? and kicking and using weapons and it's not, it's a stand down, it's an all out, it's, it's pretty much an all out brawl. They're using like, uh, they're using like uh, the metal rods and they they put him through his head and everything i mean it's intense there's a lot of gore there's a lot of blood um eddie breaks his arm and it looks really bad um and the the, ha- the first battle in, in the, the first fight in the house on Neibolt street um it's it's an all all out bruising cutting up kind of kind of fighting and then when they get down for the final one that's a good i don't know how long it is but i'd say it's probably a good 20 minute battle a 20 minute fight where they're, they're going around this gigantic room and he's trying to do all these manifestations that they they fear, but they're overcoming it and they're using baseball bats. They're using chains. They're using all at one point, all seven of them are on Pennywise and then he manages to throw them all off. But I mean, it's, it's an intense kind of all out, all out street brawl kind of street alley kind of thing. And uh, it's pretty cool to watch. But it's a lot more fighting, it's a lot more gruesome, it's a lot more grueling than anything the 1990s version did. And that's one of the things I loved about the 2017 version was they actually went up against this clown. They didn't just hold hands and say, oh, go away, I'm going to shoot you with an inhaler, and that's it. They went all out, let's roll up our sleeves and kick his ass kind of a thing. And so it turned it. more kind of into a, an action movie at that point then? An action movie at that point, yeah, I would say so. Yep, seven kids on, against one clown. And they gave, man, holy cow. And he gave, too. Like, he used his claws and he ripped Ben, ben Hanscom, the fat one, gave him another rip on the belly. Um, yeah, they walked out all bruised and cut up. And actually, at one point, he had his jaws on Stan, which is the Boy Scout, the, the Jewish Boy Scout. He actually was about to chomp down on his face. Like, all he had to do was one, er, jaws kind of, er. But all the guy, everybody else showed up and like started pummeling uh, the clown and he went away kind of a thing to regroup real quick and then come at them again. So um, yeah, it's pretty cool. I'd, I'd highly recommend the 2017 version just for the fight scenes with Pennywise because you don't really get that in the first, the first uh, 1990s movie. Yeah, all, all the gore was kind of like off screen. Yeah, because yeah. it was made for TV. So, But this one yeah. you get a lot of gore. Yeah, like uh, the, the 
one of the most iconic scenes in contemporary cinema is the Georgie scene at the sewer, or not the sewer, the grate, with the balloon, and that's where the, he's the first victim and everything. And Pennywise rips off his arm. Um, in the 1990s version, you don't see that. In the 2017 version, you see the whole thing where his teeth come out, grab the arm, rip it off. There's blood everywhere. Poor Georgie is a really cute kid in the movie. He's like trying to crawl away, just like in a war movie. And he's got he's got his arm missing, and there's just blood going everywhere because it's raining. It's going all over the street. And then you see Pennywise's arm come out and extend, grab the kid, and then start slowly dragging him in. The kid's like, oh! So it's definitely a much more intense uh, cinematic Mr. Fantastic's him, huh? <laughs> yeah, man. It's totally different. They were they had a lot more leeway, apparently, with this movie. <laughs> yeah. And it shows in a good way. So. Let me ask you this. In All the 2017 right. version, is there any uh, presentation of the arachnid form, or is it just the clown form? Briefly, um, in the final fight scene, um, Pennywise, his arms become spider legs with, like, spikes on the end. And he's trying to... Um, puncture he's trying to crush uh the black kid uh mike but mike keeps rolling like barrel rolling away from him um other than that you don't see any any arachnid form of any other kind so if you've never seen the 1990s version and you never read the book actually i listened to another podcast to see what their take was on the whole it movie and none of them had read the book none of them had seen the 1990s movie so i was kind of interested to see what they would say and they're like and one of them said yeah his arms turned into like spider legs what the heck is up with that why did they do that well that's because in the book he's a spider <laughs> you know uh, yeah yeah with the the land of the lost um, yes yeah right style animation stop motion animation what's yeah. the other uh, really terrible movie from way back when that clash of the titan style yeah clash of the titan style <laughs> uh, well. <laughs> yeah, it's good stuff. Claymation. Um, yeah, the claymation stuff. I'm just curious in the fight scene, like, are they fighting a psychological or a physical being or something that's sort of crossing realms? Because oh. he can shapeshift and kind of become their worst fears, but then if they deny his existence, then he can't harm them, but then he's physically harming them and they're fighting and kicking and punching. It seems like it's crossing over a lot of different physical and time and space sort of elements concurrently yeah it's ambiguous it's like i said stephen king is so out there he doesn't really he gives you some stuff but he doesn't give you enough information and you have these directors who are trying to wrap their heads around what exactly he's trying to convey and they're doing the best they can and you can see it manifest in the ambiguity you're right on the one hand they're like yeah we don't we're not afraid of you and all of a sudden that's a weapon just because of their attitude and their energy, supposedly. But then on the other hand, they're beating with baseball bats and metal rods, and they're blowing holes in his head with guns and stuff. Like um, in the 2017 version, um, Mike, the black kid, he, he, uh, his family runs a, uh, a sheep farm, and they, you know, they, put, uh, they use the bolt guns, and they, they, knock the, they kill the, the sheep through the head, and they chop up the meat and take it to the, the local meat shop. And so for the final scene where they go down to the sewer for the final time, he brings that gun with him. So it's like No Country for Old Men style? Yeah, exactly. It's kind of it's kind of cool. It's almost like a Clint Eastwood kind of thing where he's like, and the gun flashes in, in the sunlight in slow motion. It's funny. 
Um, and they, Bill actually takes the gun and Pennywise manifests as his little brother, Georgie. And he's like, you know what? I know you're not Georgie. Georgie's dead. And he puts the gun right to tr- the manifested Georgie's head and pulls the trigger. And it goes right into Pennywise. It doesn't kill Pennywise, obviously. But yeah, so you have the thing where, oh, we're, we're, we have this weapon called, we don't fear you in our unity. But then they also use physical weapons because I guess they don't know what else to do. You know, like, what else are we, we don't, we don't, we're not afraid, afraid of you. Well, that's not going to kill the darn thing. So I guess they just do what they think they need to do. And they get out the bats and they get out the chains and they get out whatever else they can. So, you know. Does that make Interesting. sense? Because the movie doesn't really make a lot of sense. <laughs> no, no, it doesn't. Yeah? I mean, okay. it makes sense that you're saying it doesn't make sense, if that makes sense. We're going meta, meta, meta. It's, a we're going to skew sense. Yeah, <laughs> it's skew conundrums. <laughs> It's a nascent conundrum. <laughs> yeah. All right. So you've you've seen both movies now several times. You've read the book. You've heard the mm-hmm. audiobook version. Mm-hmm. Uh, two questions. One, can you kind of give us a you know five minute compare and contrast between them? And then second, with all of the issues we've pointed out with, with Stephen King's writing, why do you think he's so popular and successful? Uh, okay. Compare and contrast. Uh, don't listen to the audiobook. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, uh, the narrator isn't bad, but he just he lacks the the gravitas and the, the drama that you would need for an audiobook, and he doesn't distinguish very well between the characters in terms of voices. So that's one of my turnoffs to audiobooks for a long time. Since then, I've over the years I found some audiobooks that work, but his narration doesn't work in that regard. So it's it's very confusing. Um, if you want a full fleshed out best version you can get of trying to understand everything about this whole thing read the book unfortunately you can't find a an edition under a thousand pages and in fact he actually has an extended edition where i think he adds another twelve thousand words or something like that so it's like an extra 300 pages or something like that um but uh the 1990s version of movie adheres to the book a lot better than the 2017 version if you want to watch the 2017 version, that's fine, but you're basically watching almost a completely different story. Um, if you want to read the 19, if you want to watch the 1999 version or 1999, 1994, whatever it is, um, you're still going to be confused, but you're not going to be as confused. Um, if that really helps, I don't know if that really helps. It's probably turning people off, but the best thing to do is to read the book. That's all I can say about that. As to why Stephen King is popular. I think he takes takes um, thing interests that people have, and he does unique. He, he portrays them in unique ways from different angles. So, for example, everybody loves classic cars, but nobody's ever done a killer classic car like he did with Christine. Um, there's the high school outcast. Uh, I don't know if you call it a trope or whatever it's called, and he took it. And he put some witchcraft to it and a lot of blood and he came out with Carrie and it just sticks in everybody's minds because it had some completely unique scenes. Um, And people like world building, look at Game of Thrones, look at Diversion, look at uh, Harry Potter, look at um, Lord of the Rings. People like it when somebody builds a complete world and then, or Star Wars or Star Trek or any of these things. These are popular because this is a whole completely different universe where the door is completely wide open and you can just do all these different things. 
And when, and it's like, uh, it's like spinoff TV shows from an original TV show. Like the Jeffersons was a spinoff of all in the family. Everybody loved the Jeffersons because they already knew the Jeffersons from Archie Bunker and all in the family. I think it's just that familiarity with characters and, Oh yeah, I'm an insider because I recognize the connection between this book and that book. It's like Cheers um, and Frasier. Yeah. I think Salem's Lot is a fantastic vampire story. You always get the vampire story where it's Count Dracula or one particular vampire. <clears throat> but in the, the Salem's Lot, I don't know if you're familiar with that, that story, but it's this one vampire that comes in and totally decimates a town, which takes place in the same universe as the It story. And, the, and it's only, and it's, I think it's actually mentioned in the It story, the town itself. And it's also met, referred to in a bunch of other books that he's written. And, and this vampire just completely decimates this, this town and basically wipes it off the map. So he just takes these unique, he just takes these things that we all know about and he puts a completely different spin on them. And people are like, huh, yeah. And you don't have to think too much. You know, it's not like a Dostoevsky or one of the great Russian writers where you're like, oh, shit, this is going to be a slog fest. Um, it may be a slog fest in terms of the length of the book, like Stan, for example, is like 1,500 pages, but that's the only slogging you have to do. You don't have to like put a whole lot of thought into, into, the, into the reading of it in order to get stuff out of the story. It's entertainment, you know, just like James Patterson or, you know, Nora Roberts is with a lot of um, women readers, um, things of that nature. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, and, and I think this is good information for uh, Robert, who is writing a book himself and, and this idea of a universe. Um, is that something you kind of have in mind, Robert? For sure. Yeah. Uh, I've been bringing a couple different stories that all take place in the same, in the same world and they interconnect. And if you read them all, you get a little bit more each time about the exactly. overall world. Yeah. yeah. People love that stuff. I like that stuff, you know? Uh, yeah. And people like it in the, uh, the Marvel movies and like you, yeah. the, all the other examples you mentioned, the yeah. interconnectedness and in the, uh, yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, one question I had for, I guess, both of you guys, and one of the issues that I had was just the, the way that the story was told, the way the king, I guess the way King told the story, from all I know from the 90s version, it sounds like the 2000, the current version is um, different enough so that there's tension. But in the, in the 1990 version, and I guess in the book, uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but you you meet all the adults and then you're 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 seeing the story as them as their kids and you're seeing all these scary things happen to them but when you already establish that they've survived their encounters as a child there's no tension that they're going to die or even be maimed or mm -hmm. anything all you're all you're left with is that they are going to be somehow damaged psychologically which is fine i guess in a psychological study of a story but in a traditional horror movie you're generally, you know, worried that they're going to die or, you know, that this character is really in trouble here in the scene. Mm -hmm. And for me, when, when you already know they're going to live, it's like, well, okay, it's, it's more of a study on their psychology and what kind of a person this is as opposed to, oh, my God, are they going to make it? So the tension is removed and it, you turn it more into a, oh, okay, so what is this character like now? This is... You know, it's a different kind of a story, and it's weird that this is called a horror story because for me, there's no tension, there's no scariness because that's all removed, and it's more of a psychological study. Uh, did anybody else get that, or am I 
Yeah, I, I noticed that as well. Right. When I was watching it, I was like, well, I know these kids all survive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so I'm just well, kind of watching uh, them go through the emotions, you know. In tw- the right. 2017 version, you don't know that because it doesn't focus on the adults at all. It's completely on the children. Right. It's not a flashback. It's just, just the kids and that's it. And when you watch it, you don't – and if you're not familiar with any of the other aspects of this whole backstory – you don't know if they're going to survive or not. That's why it seems like a superior story to me, even yeah. though I haven't seen it. Just, no, no, you're, it you're like right. From a perspective. It, cre- it keeps that tension going. That you're right. That doesn't exist with the made-for-TV movie. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it sounds like the uh, 2017 version is almost a more refined version of refined product that is mm-hmm. more standalone and uh, holds up you know, under the storytelling and the maintaining tension and, and having that horror and that mystery and the question, are they going to survive this encounter or not? Right. Um, as opposed you, to the overall arc of, of the universe and the individual story, both novel and 1990 version. And that's a strange. Because it does, seem like, it does seem like it's weird that you would have such a large cast and then not kill any of them off. <laughs> it seems weird, you know? Yeah. You got well, seven of these kids. Kill. Why, yeah. why have so many if you're not going to bump a couple of them off? I mean, you know. Yeah. You get some secondary anyway. ones and some tertiary ones, and some ones that never make it to the screen at all, they get killed. Yeah, so the ones that right. beam right. down wearing the red shirt, right? Right. Right. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know yeah. they're not coming so, back. <laughs> so, Doc, what, what's your favorite version? Uh, I'm sure you, you like each one differently for different reasons. Yeah, but. I like each one differently for different reasons. But if I had to pick a best one? Yeah. Oh. Well, I watched the, you know how you have fond memories of your childhood when you look back and stuff like that. So I, I want to lean toward the 1990s version, despite its campiness, but wow. I'm going okay. to give it to the 2017 version. I'll, I'll give the link okay. to the 2017 version. Have you guys read the Lord of the Rings trilogy at all? I have, yeah. yes. Okay. Um, you know how like he he's with Frodo and Samwise for like, 200 pages and then oh by the way there's these other guys that are part of the the seventh of the fellowship and let's go see what they're doing um that's kind of like what um stephen king did in the book but peter jackson made the lord of the rings movie so much better because he went back and forth relatively smoothly and he kept Mm. the surprise of each storyline the whole way through the movie and that's what the 2017 version does it kind of keeps everything together instead of going off on this tangent for a long while. And then going off on this tangent for a long while keeps everything nice and tight and streamlined uh-huh. and moving. Granted, he still Pennywise still has to appear to each kid individually first. But it's and each one is is intense, but it's it's quicker and it's not as drawn out and it's 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 more relevant to each of the other what each of the other ones have to deal with. And like I said, there's more battle scenes, more fight scenes with all of them against Pennywise. So I think it's more focused on them together in one storyline as opposed to the 1990s version and opposed to the book where it goes off on all these different tangents for a while. And oh, by the way, then let's go to this. For like 60 pages, you just deal with this one person. And then for 100 pages, you deal with the second person. And then for 75 pages, you deal with the next person. Or in the 1990s movie, for 25 minutes, you deal with Eddie. Then for 15 minutes, you deal with Richie. And then for a half hour, you deal with Bill. You know what I mean? In the 2017 version, it's like a couple minutes, five minutes, three minutes, 
and that's it. And then half the movie is them together doing something as a, as a unit. So the point that I made to my wife is is relevant and what they basically did in the 2017 version. Yes. Like okay, yeah, that's good. <laughs> that's good. Yeah, you did. You done did well. <laughs> now I, on the Lord of the Rings, when I read it, uh, I did notice that as well that it seemed to you were you dived into each uh, story individually for chapters at a time. Yep. Uh, the other thing when I read it is you know it's like 1,100 pages or whatever. Whenever he got into songs, I just skipped through it. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> I don't need this, you know. <laughs> I just read Gone with the Wind for a book club, and it turned out to be a great story. But there's a lot of songs in that, that, that book, and I'm like, what the heck? Skip the song. I did the same thing. I just skipped over the songs. Like, you don't need this. Keep going, you know? Yeah, it was like a bunch of made-up words anyway, so like, yeah. it's not going to mean anything to me. <laughs> right, yep. Yep. <laughs> anyway. Uh, Doc, let's put on your Rothbardian hat because in the pre-show Uh-oh. you were talking about you had sort of this um, nascent uh, anarcho-capitalist perspective on the story of this group of people coming together in an, um, an anarchy-type fashion against a collective nightmare. So let's just cover that a little bit and then we'll uh, get into the final impressions and start winding the show down because I know it's super late for you. Nope, it's fine. Um I'm going to go on a very macro level here, which I tend to prefer. Okay, so bear with me and see if this plays out in your, in your minds okay. So you have, um, the way I figure it is, you have Pennywise, which is like Big Brother. He's all places, all the time in Derry, in the town. He's always constantly watching. There's no place where you're safe. You could be. You could look over your shoulder and see him at any given moment. He's he's like George Orwell's Big Brother, you, or or our modern day North Korea. You just can't get away from Pennywise, aka the totalitarian state, no matter what you do. And then you have the masses, most of whom are sheep that just go along with it because they don't know what else to do. They're too scared, what have you. So it's it's that whole. I'm going to pick the lesser of two evils kind of a thing. And it's like, no, you just don't pick evil at all. Well, no, we really just don't have a choice here. You have to pick one or the other. And it's like, okay. And then you have the Henry Bowers gang, which is kind of like the, um, like the mafia or something. They're just like capitalist, oppor- not capitalist, well, I guess kind of opportunists where they're just going to go off and do their own thing. And they bully all the kids and they take all their money and they take their possessions and they just try to have power over them. But they're nothing compared to the state. So one of the debates that I constantly see between on, on online between statists and libertarians and ANCAPs is the idea that, well, you know, if um, there was no government, then there would just be these warlords and they would become as powerful as the government. And it's like, no, there's so many reasons why that wouldn't happen. You cannot um, refute this. <laughs> yeah, you, yeah, right. The one guy's like, you cannot refute this. And it's like, what are you talking about? Here, I'm refuting this. No, you didn't refute it. Okay, whatever. Um, I mean, it's so much worse when you have a concentrated monopoly on power, like with military and nuclear weapons and whatever. And what's the, what's the mafia? The mafia freaking like destroyed itself between all the different families and everything. That's kind of like the, Harry, the Henry Bowers gang. And then you have the losers. You have this group of seven kids, and they're like, you know what? You people aren't doing, you know, the adults aren't doing anything. And the Henry Bowers gang, we could just, you know, slop them off kind of thing. We have to look at the big 
the big kahuna, which is Pennywise, we have to go after the totalitarian state. And they do whatever they need to do to do it. And the masses come after them saying, what do you think you're doing? You're just a bunch of losers and everything else. So you have libertarians and ANCAPs like, like us and Tom Woods and Walter Block and Hop and all these guys who were considered outsiders, were considered the crazy ones. Some people on Facebook have called us a cult, you know, which is easily refuted. But they're like, you know, what are you going to do? Just join the system. And they refuse to join the system. So I see it as libertarian ANCAPs kind of fighting the totalitarian state and the masses of sheep who just go along with it because they somehow benefit from it. Like, oh, they're not going to kill us. The, the, the clown's not going to kill us, so we're okay. Um, so take it for what it's worth. That's, that's how I look at it. You can tell me if I'm wrong, poke holes in it. No, I, I like that, uh, fairly well. Um, I noticed in the 1990 version that it became apparent that the town knew something was going on, but they Mm -hmm. turned a blind eye towards it. Even though they couldn't see the blood and they couldn't see like the manifestations of the evil, uh, in the same kind of form that the children could. Mm-hmm. But they knew something was going on, and they would look away. They would choose to ignore it, like when uh, Henry Bowers was bullying, um, what's her name, Beverly. Mm-hmm. And the old man was out in his garden and just, like, turned away and was like, all right, well, she, she's going to get raped by this kid, and, <laughs> you know, I'm just not yeah. going to do anything. It was yeah. like that um, Kitty yeah. Genovese kind of story, right, that uh-huh. I, I guess isn't necessarily true, even though it's still in a lot of psychological uh, psychology textbooks these days still. But I guess the story behind it isn't, isn't uh, as presented. It, it wasn't a bunch of people who'd never called the cops or whatever. It's like that diffusion of responsibility thing. Um, but I don't know. It just seemed like in, in the 1990 version that they were trying to get to the point where the evil was in the town, in the in the core of the town, in the roots of the town, and then the entire population was sort of in on it, mm-hmm. um, either being complicit or just de- denying it or ignoring it. But there was some evil there that um, wasn't, you know, in the next town over. And, and right. somehow they knew about it. And um, Mike Hanlon sort of saw the pattern when he was looking through the historical records of all of the... Uh, the disasters that had happened every 30 years. Uh, but maybe you can speak to that just a little bit and, and explain it because there was like a, a fire and a factory that exploded and, and a few other things all the way back to like the 1700s. But none of them seem to be related to um, what a clown might do or a manifestation of, of a clown causing all this harm, even though they did see old pictures of Pennywise being in these areas. Mm-hmm. So it didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Like, why would the clown blow up the factory? Why would the clown, I don't know, was there like a, a, a some kind of a mining accident and then there was some other thing that had happened? Um, well, in the t- first of all, in the 2017 version, it's not Mike. It's um, Ben who discovers this. He's the new kid in town, the, the chubby one. That's his weakness is he's, he's fat. Um, and he's the one who sits in the library. By the way... One of the best scenes in the movie, the 2017 movie, is when Ben is in the library. Now, not, I'm not partial to it because I'm a librarian, but because it may be one of the most creepiest scenes in the whole freaking movie. It's just, oh my god, intense. Yeah, you gotta when you when you watch it, when you see Ben, it's toward the beginning of the movie. It's early in the movie when you see Ben in the library. Be like, okay, the shit's about to hit. You know, like get ready for this. This is gonna be intense. 
but to get to the explanation, um, it, the clown, that the manifested clown, it awakens um, when there's some kind of a huge, brutal act of violence. Like somehow, the, going back to the psychic energy sort of thing, violence draws it out. And at the same time, something of equal violence and brutality has to, has to occur in order for it to go back to sleep. Cause, so it comes out to eat and then it goes back to sleep. Um, it started in the 1700s. Well, it started millions of years prior, but in the 1700s, um, the first settlers that founded Derry all got wiped out and there was no trace of what of them and they had no idea what happened to them. You know, you think back in colonial times, it's the, it's the Native Americans that uh, attacked the camp, but there was no evidence of that. This is like the, the Jamestown... Uh... Kind of like the Jamestown, Roanoke, Virginia kind of thing, yeah. yeah. Where you have a group of colonists and the ship comes back and they're all gone. And you got some crazy thing written on a tree trunk that nobody understands what the word means. Um, and then the, the, the Freemasons do, though, right? Well, the Freemasons do that, yeah. yeah I'm a Freemason, so all you conspiracy people out there, oh, you know, I'm in part of the 500. I know who killed Kennedy. Huh. <laughs> um, in 1850, in the 1850s, um, there was a guy named John Markson who killed his whole family and then killed himself. He killed himself by eating white shade mushrooms, which is an excruciating way to die, and that drew him awake, and then he kill people and then he went back to sleep um and then uh there was the and this is shown in the 2017 version there's a mural on a wall there's this gang this criminal gang that shows up in Derry, and um they there's like a massacre where they're the most wanted gang in america and the townspeople in Derry realize that so they take matters into their own hands and massacre this this huge group of gangsters and that's enough for bodies and everything else for it to feast on and then go back to sleep. And then there's that thing called the Black Spot, which was like a jazz club for the blacks because back then there, were, there was a lot of segregation and everything like that. And um, when the jazz club burned down, that was its final meal before it went back to sleep again. And then Georgie was the first uh, kid to be killed in the um, modern manifestation of it oh and the easter the firework the the ironworks there was an explosion what happened with that there's a lot of people who are confused about that there was big ironworks foundry in town that was their main source of um income for the town and for all the jobs and everything and they decided to have an easter egg hunt to celebrate easter and it's ambiguous as to what caused the explosion but it was probably pennywise and there was like 180 people that died in it, including like 100 kids. And uh, that was another violent act that uh, ended the, that particular cycle of it. So it's all based on violence and brutality, which is that yin and yang thing that we talked about with the turtle before. So. Okay, and the 1990 version, it seemed like he would just awaken on sort of a, a, a number of years type cycle and not be... 20, 28, I think it's in the book. I think it's 28. Yeah, so not, not drawn out by an act of violence, but just a... a t- cyclical nature right. it sounds like in the book it's it's more like this huge event exactly this energy or disturbance in the force if you will that yep. that draws them out okay yeah and by the way um there's a one of henry bowers gang members his name is patrick hockstetter um 
if in the 1990s version, you ha- I don't think he really made too much of an appearance. You had Henry, Harry Bauer, Henry Bowers, then you had Belch, the one who likes to yeah. Belch, and then you had this other kid, I forget what his name is, and then Patrick Hockstetter really doesn't appear in the 1990s version. In the 2017 version, he chases Ben. They, they're beating up on Ben, and just like in the 1990s version, Ben gets away and he rolls down the hill, and then he meets the gang for the first time. Um, but Patrick Hockstetter goes after him, and he winds up going into a big, gigantic drain pipe. And um, in the 2017 version, he gets he sees a manifestation of all the dead kids, so it's kind of like Night of the Living Dead kind of a thing. And then he gets cornered and eaten by the clown. But in the book, it's so much cooler because he's afraid of leeches for some reason. And in the book, he's an animal torturer. So he kill, tortures and kills animals. And he puts them in this fridge out in the barrens. It's not working or anything. It's down in the middle of nowhere. And he goes to open the refrigerator and all these flying leeches come out. And it's it's the th- it manifested as these leeches, and they suck all the blood out of them. It's like, oh my god, that's such a cool freaking scene in the book. And they didn't do that in the movie. I'm like, you sons of bitches, you should have done that. That would have been so much better. Than- <laughs> We've seen the zombie thing ten thousand times. I mean, just walk watch The Walking Dead for crying out loud, which is one of my favorite shows. And it's like, you know, the zombie thing's done. The flying leeches, nobody's done that. Why didn't you do that instead? You know, so, missed opportunity. Missed opportunity. <laughs> So Robert, you want to you want to jump in here uh, before we start asking him about the orgy, and then then we'll do the final reviews. <laughs> Nothing I can say would change anybody's mind away from what the orgy would be about. So let's just he wants to get to the orgy. <laughs> so in the it, people would just be going, shut up and move on to the orgy talk. Let's go. <laughs> so let's talk for another twenty minutes before the orgy. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't happen in the 1990s version for obvious reasons, <clears throat> and it doesn't happen in the 2017 version because it's still rather taboo, but rightly so. But in the book, um, they go through the cutting of their palms and sharing their blood as a pact in case Pennywise comes back. But they also, Beverly comes, I think it's Beverly, comes up with the idea of sealing the pact even more, consummating it, so to speak, by having sex with all the boys. Um, she just has this intuition inside her. I wouldn't call it feminine necessarily because just because she's a woman. But she gets this feeling that, you know what, this major act needs to happen. So they're in the sewers and all this gray water, which is piss and shit and everything else. And it's all... Because, wait, because, because being attacked by a demon clown is memorable enough? Not as memorable. Nope, 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 okay. nope. <laughs> Not good enough. It's not enough. To, not quite you enough. You need to lose your virginity at 10 years old in this yeah. kind of gang sewer filth. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm, you're I'm all on board. This is working for me. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And you're all cut up in everything from this battle anyway, right? Now, um, are, in the book, are they like 10 years old or are they... Yeah, older? they're like 11, 12, 13. In the movie... The 2017 version, it blatantly shows they're about 13. And the, the Harry, Henry Bauer, I keep calling him Harry. The Henry Bauer's gang is 15, so he's a little bit older. Um, yeah, so they all decide to go along with it. So she goes through with each one, and there's two guys in the group that have a particular crush on her, which is Ben and blah, 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 Bill. So Ben is the next to last, and he makes her climax because she's she's thinking to herself, man, he's big and everything like that. It's, it's really, ugh. 
And then you have Bill, and she has a crush on Bill. See, Ben has a crush on her, and Bill has a crush on her, but she has a crush on Bill as well. And he makes her climax as well. So, but, but I read things saying that it wasn't really, I mean, it's a sexual act, obviously, but it wasn't like a lustful act. It was more of a, how did people put it? It was more of a, an obligatory, something that needs to be done. Like it's a dutiful kind of thing. I just have to do this to do this. Which, like sealing the contract. Sealing the contract. In, sealing in another, the deal. With, with other kinds of blood, you know what I mean? It's, um, yeah. And uh, that's, that's the, uh, or right now we have did all it, your listeners cringing right now. Did it make sense? <laughs> it, it, it didn't make sense did to my better half, but it made sense to me. Um, in that particular way, like I didn't, I didn't agree with it. I'm like, you know, this really didn't have to be in the book, but I understand why he put it in the book. So. Does it get referenced at any point later on? Because in the 1990s version, we were talking in the pre-show yeah. about how they, when they come back together, there's like a lot of like kissing on the lips between the girl and all the guys, and it's like, oh, it's just like how they did it back in the 90s, like French style. <laughs> yeah, well, for most of them, like Eddie and Richie, it was it's like a brotherly, sisterly, sibling kind of thing. But in, you know, for like Ben, who had a crush on her, he still does. Um, it's more of a lustful thing, and I actually found it kind of kind of immoral in the sense that uh, Bill has a wife, Audra, and I don't know if you noticed the way he kisses um, Beverly the first time they meet. It's like a long, deep, drawn-out kiss, and it's like, dude, you've got a wife that you supposedly love dearly. What the heck are you doing? You know? Right. But it, metaphorically, it's because, like you said, fighting a demon clown isn't enough. It's that is the final, the act of finality that metaphorically that ends their adulthood, uh, ends their childhood, and carries them mm. into adulthood for what it's worth. But it has the power to help. It has the influence to make them forget things. So if you notice in the 1990s version, they're like, oh yeah, they, their memories start coming back to them and they're like, I completely forgot about this and that and the other thing. Um, right. So <clears throat> they didn't really, it was almost like a kind of symptom of um, PTSD <clears throat> where their brains just, it between it and and their own brains, their own subconscious, they, it kind of pushed all of that all those events out of their heads to the point where they just didn't remember any of it, you know? So. Yeah. It seems like it would have been turned out better for it. If he had just never showed up when they came back. Yep. But he's just there. Gone so. back into hiding. But he kind of taunts them because he leaves the Georgie picture. And he's like, yeah, he like kind of taunts them to come back because he makes himself known to Mike who calls everybody back. But at the same time, he's like, don't come back, you know, stay away. And it's like, well, will you, will you giving mixed messages here, dude. You know, doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Mixed messages. Big time. If, big it, time. if they don't remember you, you're, you're probably going to have a better chance of surviving. Yeah. <laughs> right. If you, you go and taunt them and be like, don't come <laughs> over here. Yeah. Well, it so seems like that. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, it's like just a showing that you're afraid of them coming over there. Yep. Right. Mm-hmm. Anyway, strategy aside, it just seems strategy like, aside. Um, yeah, it just seems like uh, when you're writing a story and you don't necessarily really plot it out ahead of time, and you just kind of make it up as you go, um, yeah. you run into these weird little inconsistencies that I think you can probably hammer out um, if you really... Between doses of Coke, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well... Yeah, it seemed really, really weird. Like you're, you're pointing out here, is that he had no reason to taunt them if they were the only ones who he couldn't affect, and 
right. could have killed him. He could have just gone on killing all the other kids in town and going going back to hibernation, cryo sleep, and then come back yeah. 27 years later and do it again. Like why why tempt uh, these people who are familiar with him and and how to at least defend themselves, him. And fight yeah. fight him, harm him, deal with him in some way, you know, come out and escape, yeah. so to speak. So, yeah, it's. Ask Stephen King. Hey, Stephen, what the hell are you doing, man? <laughs> yeah. It's like he's just writing to, to write, you know, just to yeah. get something on the page and just yep. kind of meander. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm, I'm surprised that that is successful. It seems bizarre to me, but... Well, yeah, Dean Koontz is successful and everything else, you know. As a librarian, it's amazing. Um, for example, there's people... Uh, let's just take Danielle Steele because everybody knows who Danielle Steele is. She's earned over 200 bucks. She's one of the most all-time best-selling authors ever. She sold something like 300 million copies of her books. It's crazy. And when you at, when I ask her readers what's so enamoring about her work, they say, well, it's just kind of like the same story over and over. And she just, puts, she just takes the same kind of character template puts it in a different setting with the same kind of narrative. And I'm like, well, why, you know, after 200 times, don't you get tired of that? And I think it's kind of like, like music, you know, some, there's like some kind, everybody has their own taste in music and everybody likes their own sound. So you can kind of listen to like the same kind of style of music and not necessarily get bored with it. So for example, my better half loves doo-wop. She can listen to doo-wop for 10 hours. Now to me, I can listen to it for about a half hour and I'm like, okay, it all sounds the same to me. But she likes the sound so much that it doesn't matter. She just doesn't mind listening to it with little nuanced differences. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, but as you become more familiar, more expert, more specialized in a certain arena, you start noticing, like you were saying, those nuances mm-hmm. and those nascent differences between the things. <laughs> I don't and, think the nascent works in that particular <laughs> I'm just Is that a drinking game that I'm not aware of? <laughs> I, I think you're eschewing it in the wrong context. <laughs> But you, you know what I'm saying? Like, like you sort of become part of this little club, right? Like yeah. you're in the doo-wop club now. You, you, mm-hmm. you can tell the difference between song, you know, one and song 58. Uh, whereas you, as a listener, they sound exactly the same. And, and she'll point I, out the differences to me. Like, there's an extra yeah. clap, and I'm like, okay, there's an extra clap. But it makes all the difference. But you can get an, okay. an, an affinity for it. And so, like you were saying, when when you start building a universe. And you start having a certain voice or a certain style or a certain sound. Uh, people become familiar with it. If they like it, they'll continue to seek it out. And so even though on the surface level it might appear to be the same story, just repeated, 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 um, the fans will see it and be like, oh, that's what I want. I want more of that. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong that. with that. It's just, yeah. And that just, yeah, that just goes to your question, like, well, why do they keep reading Stephen King? It's like, well, there you go. All right, well, one mystery solved. Yay, one. (laughs) (laughs) But many more are left open. All right, so, Robert, unless you have anything else, why don't we get into the final summary and and, uh, our rating. And as a listener, Doc, you know that we do the uh, black and gold for a good movie and a black and red for a not-so-good movie. And for you, I'm going to ask for three different ratings, and that's going to be for the book, both versions of the movie. And Robert and I will just do the 1990 Tim Curry version because that's all we have seen. So, right. Doc, why don't you take it away, and then we'll we'll do our bit. Movie, black black and gold. Uh, not, um, 2017 movie, black and gold. Um, 1990s version, black and red. Except for Tim Curry, he's like the one exception. 
because you can't it, you can't give black and black and red to Tim Curry. And the book I would give black and gold. All right, yeah. Robert, you want to jump in on that? Yeah, the the only thing I saw. I mean, if you're going into it and you want to see a comedy, watch the first half of this <laughs> 1990 version. You will laugh out loud. I did. Um, just at the hilariousness of how ridiculous it was. But, I mean, then you learn more about the constraints and the budget and the fact that it had to be edited for television and all that. And, yeah, you see why it's not good. Um, But Tim Curry Curry was excellent, and you're absolutely right. He is a fantastic actor, and he always has a lot of charm every time he's on screen, and no matter what he does. Uh, Probably my favorite appearance of his is Clue, um, yeah. Also, Rocky Horror is fantastic. Um, he's just a great actor all around. But yeah, this movie is absolutely black and red. Sorry, it, it unless you're specifically looking for a comedy or some kind of a schlocky, cheesy, weirdo, not lack of tension, weirdo kind of ugh, creepy movie. Uh, I don't really know who it's for or what it's for because there is no real... There's no character arcs. There's no nobody learns anything that helps them defeat Pennywise that they use later on. It's it's this weird kind of psychological story that never really amounts to anything. And um, yeah, for me, yeah, completely black and red. It, it seemed it seemed pointless in a way. <laughs> so yeah, that's my take on it, Daniel. Yeah, I'm gonna tend to agree with you. I mean, despite the nostalgia for for Doc Brown here, who. Uh purchased this on VHS and watched it dozens of times. Um, I'm going to have to go black and red on this as well, except I will point out that uh, Scott Evil, big fan of his work, uh, my doppelganger, big fan of his work, seeing John Ritter on screen was was pretty decent, but you could tell that they were all television actors. Um, and yeah it, yeah, it was one of those movies I watched and I was like, what the hell's going on? This doesn't make any sense. It's so long. And then when it was over, I was like, okay, I don't know what I'm going to talk about on the show. <laughs> yeah, but here we are, you know, an hour and forty-five minutes into into the show. So I guess we we figured something wow. to talk about. Jeez. Can uh, I just add it, one quick thing? Yeah, go for yeah. it. Okay, I just want to let you, uh, people know, your listeners, if they're not familiar with Stephen King's work, um, we've been talking about the world building and whatnot, and um, most of Stephen King's books uh, connect with each other in some way, shape, or form. Um, I would say his magnum opus is the Dark Tower series because it's a huge series and that gives a lot of answers to all this stuff that is really difficult to explain if we're just focusing on one particular movie. Um, But if you want a single version magnum opus, I would say The Stand. The Stand is a dystopian book about um, the world gets um, overrun by a plague and like 99% of everybody dies. And um, it winds up where as many people as possible who are left come together in the United States. The good people gather in one camp and the evil people gather together in another camp. And they have one final apocalyptic battle kind of a thing. It's really long. It's like 1,500 pages or something like that. There was a half-decent movie with some big-name actors in it. I would give it a black and red as the movie. But the book, I would definitely give a black and gold. But if now, you want, go ahead, go ahead. Isn't there, um, with The Stand, wasn't there a companion novel by the Richard Bachman version? Or is that something else I'm thinking of? Uh, there might be something. You might be right, but there might be something else. I'm not quite sure off the top of like my Like The Regulators or something like that? Yes, the reg- well, The Regulators is kind of a bit of an offshoot of that. Yeah. Regulators, mount up. 
So, but <laughs> I would recommend Warren if, if you read one book about um, the Stephen King universe, I would make it it because from it, just about everything ba- else bounces off of it. Like mm. it is the central, it's like the, the bedrock. It's the foundation from which even the dark tower series from which everything else springs. Um, Shawshank Redemption springs off of it. Um, what? Yeah. Shawshank Redemption it, takes place in the same universe. Yep. So every, just about every, just about everything takes place in the same universe. Even the green mile, you know, in the green mile, how uh, the guy who's the big guy who's going to die, he has this particular, Power. Sound copy. Sure. Yes. That's The Shining. That ties in with The sh- um, the Shining, with Jack Nicholson and he, everything. Sh- and, go ahead. Go ahead. Shining has the same power as John Coffey? Yep. And the guy, the black guy in the movie, Nick Dick Holleran, or whatever his name is, in The Shining, who gets axed at the end of the movie, he was at the black spot in It. So there's like all these different, you know how we were talking about, you, once you start reading the books, you start making all these connections. It's amazing yeah. how many connections can be made. Christine is tagged to it. Cujo is tagged to it. Um, Salem's Lot. Um, the Under the Dome, which just came out a few years ago and was made into a uh, miniseries, I think on Netflix, I think it was. Um, that takes place in the same universe. And the same. it deals with aliens. And the same aliens in Under the Dome are also the same aliens in the Tommyknockers. And the Tommyknockers takes place in the same universe as well. Then you have uh, the most. Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Oh no, I just wanted to jump in and the, my two favorite Stephen King books that I've read in my lifetime yeah. were Tommy Knockers, which I think is fantastic, and is fantastic. Uh, the drawing, the drawing of the three, which is the okay. second book in the Dark Tower series. Mm-hmm. Actually, uh, just, it makes an appearance in the Dark Tower series. Uh, it makes an appearance. Yes, but he goes under a different name. So. And the black man is and the black man in the Dark Tower series is the main bad guy in the stand. And he's also a counterpart to Pennywise in the, this whole macro universe thing. Everything's really connected um, in this. So the Tommy Knockers, I love the Tommy Knockers, especially the flying lawnmower. <laughs> that was great. I was like, holy cow. I didn't like the movie so much. I would give that a, a black and red, but the book was great. I read it as a kid and I loved it. Um, yeah, wasn't the movie uh, another made-for-TV deal? Yes, it was not a made-for-TV yeah. deal, so it was very corny and blah. Um, yeah. You may also know of the book Eleven Twenty Two Sixty Three. Are you familiar with that one? Yeah, it's about Kennedy. Yeah, that's about Kennedy. And then James Franco did a fantastic miniseries. I would highly recommend watching the miniseries. Um, that's in the that's, same universe. Yep. Actually, in the book, um, the main character meets Beverly and Richie. He goes back in time, and 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 a good portion, a good chunk of the of the beginning of the book takes place in Derry in 1958, which is when this first encounter with Pennywise happens. And he meets Beverly and he meets um, Richie and they talk about the clown and they talk about the turtle and actually it sends telepathic messages to the main character knowing that he went back in time saying, you really don't want to go back to your own time. You really don't want to save Kennedy. You want to come in, you want to come here and float with us kind of a thing. So all these different things are tied together in the, um, the, the Stephen King universe. And it is pretty much the central book that kind of ties everything together. So the Salem's Lot thing that I was talking about with the vampires, that ties in. There's a great movie with the great legendary Max Van, Max Van Sydow, I think is how you pronounce his name. And he plays, uh, he pretty much plays Satan in a movie called Needful Things. It was another made-for-TV movie, but this one was pretty darn good. 
and the book was good too. That ties in. Um, Carrie ties in. Oh, check this out. Um, there's a suppose it's like they're like the Masons. There's this group that um, is called. Uh, what are they called? I forget what they're called. But they're the ones that are behind the scenes creating everything. So you remember the movie Firestarter with Drew Barrymore? Sure. Where she has the power to turn the supposedly this group gave her that power. So there's a lot of this group is behind a lot of different things. It's kinda cool. Uh, and, oh you, and you know the movie here. Oh, sorry. And you know the movie um uh Misery with James Caan? Yeah. Where uh what's her face? Kathy uh Bates. Bates. Kathy Bates, yep. Yeah. One of the Best scenes I've ever watched in a horror movie. I would call that a horror movie. Is when she breaks his ankles. Oh my god, that yep. was ugh. oh yeah. Um, James Caan's character was actually one of the losers' neighbors as kids. I'm not going <clears> to <throat> tell you which one. It's in the book though. So oh, they all tie in. It's really cool. So. All right. So I, I meant to bring this up way way earlier, but is Bill is is that the Stephen King like self writing character? Like he's putting himself in the story. He does that a lot. Derry is based on Banger, where he's from. So um, I, there was an interview where, yeah, he said he's he's like one of the particular characters. And I think it might have been Bill. Yeah, well, in the uh, 1990 version, Bill is the one who writes stories. And so when the poem yeah, gets horror stories. Yeah, yeah, horror mm-hmm. stories. Um, mm-hmm. Beverly thinks that Bill had written it, but it was actually right. Haystack. Right. He wrote because that. Bill's he's the writer. writer. Yeah. I think so. I think you may be right. I know he did write one of the characters kind of after himself, like a facsimile of himself. He eschewed himself into a character. <laughs> well, that's interesting, though, because in the Dark Tower series, he actually puts himself literally in the story. Yes. The last, Isn't that I think cool? two books, like Stephen King is a character, and then the main characters in the book have to convince him to finish the story or something like that. I don't know. I haven't read it. Yep. but. The only other time I've ever seen that, I mean, there was probably other times, but the only other time that I can remember that is the um, the Nightmare on Elm Street movie, Final Nightmare. Do you remember that one? Where Freddy Krueger is killing everybody that played in the movies, but it's supposed to be in real life. So he actually goes after Wes Craven. And <laughs> um, the girl from, that makes it out of the first movie, she goes to find Wes Craven. She's like, all these people that were in the movies are dying, and it's Freddy. And even Robert England gets attacked by Freddy. And Wes Craven's like, yeah, he's an idea. Now that he's an idea, he can manifest and whatever. That was the only other time I ever came across that particular um, writing. Meta style. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, breaking several walls there. And it's interesting you mentioned Nightmare on Elm Street because um, actually in watching the 1990 version of It, I saw some parallels with that and and you just reminded me. Oh, and in the 2017 version, the movie theater... Um, it changes, the marquee changes from time to time. So one of the movies that's shown is Batman, the Michael Keaton Batman. And yeah, then, 89 um, version. Yeah. yeah, and then toward the end of the movie, um, one of the one movie on the marquee is Nightmare on Elm Street Part 5. <laughs> so that's like pretty nice. And then the one kid is wearing an Airwolf t-shirt. I loved that show when I was a kid. So there's all kinds of cool little Easter eggs in there. Like oh, with the helicopter? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> pretty cool. All right, very cool. Well, I think that we should probably wind this show down and, and then perhaps go into Kathleen Turner Overdrive. I know you have a quick story that you wanted to share in that. So if anyone wants to get a piece of that action, 
head on over to our tip jar page at actualanarchy.com slash tip jar and become a Patreon subscriber, supporter of ours, and you will get the full behind-the-scenes pre-show and post-show Kathleen Turner Overdrive action that will have Doc Brown's story about where he had guns drawn and pulled on, on him in a parking lot for, for doing something very, very nefarious and evil, right? Evil. Wink, wink. So uh, this has been uh, episode 41 of the Actual Anarchy podcast. You can find the show notes page and more at actualanarchy.com slash 41. I want to thank our guest, Doc Brown, for joining us. And uh, Robert, as always, thanks for joining us. If you guys have any final words for the audience before we move into the Kathleen Turner Overdrive, uh, say your piece now or forever hold that piece or something. I don't know. I'm rambling at this point. I just want to, I want to thank Doc Brown for coming on, and I want to thank all our listeners for tuning in. Stay free, my friends. And I want to thank you for having me. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Love the show. And I hope uh, your audience liked having me on. So. Yeah, I think so. I think we'll have you back. So uh, cool. thank you, everyone, for uh, joining us out on this adventure. Uh, this uh, episode has been rated MF for Maximum Freedom. And stay thirsty, my friends. Chipmunks. C H I P M U N K. We're the chipmunks. Guaranteed to brighten your day. Do 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 do